This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. You ready? Yeah. All right, guys. Welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader. And before we get into it with Pat Quinn, the return of Pat Quinn, I just want to talk about a couple of uh, a couple of things. Number one is I really think that you should reconsider the way your website is. A lot of people think, well, I got the money for this, I got the money for that, but I don't have the money for the wood website. If you're trying to get your point across without having to deal with a million DMs, and deal with people who are going to ask you, you know, window shopping questions and try to kind of filter through to get to the meat of the people that you want to be talking to. You got to get a good website. So if you go to akinteractive.com slash full blast and you fill out the paperwork, Andreas Kalani will kind of get you, get an idea of what you're looking for in terms of your website. Now, maybe you already have a website, but you just need to get it gussied up. Well, he can do that. He can link it to uh, some sort of a payment situation. So, you know, you can, I don't know what kind of service you use. If you use Shopify or all those things, he can kind of get that squared away. He can make it easier for you to work yourself. And there's no a monthly fees. There's no, he's in set it up for you. He's going to show you how to do it. He's going to make it right for you. And then you're going to be able to, uh, if you, if you're a hobbyist and you just want to get your information out, he'll make it easy for you to run. If you want to run a business, he's going to make it for your interest, make it easy for you to work and you're going to be in business. So go to akinteractive.com slash full blast. And you know, if you just want a consultation, even on just your graphic design or logo design or something like that, he's the man. And uh, I just talked to him. We're going to work out the next year. Very excited that he's he's uh, going to be back, and uh, we're going to be squared away. So akinteractive.com. Thank you, Andreas Kalani. You're the best. The next thing is uh, Axe Wax. Axe Wax is an all-natural food-safe wax for your axe, for your hammers, for your wood, for your steel, for your Damascus. I had some knives that were a little bit on the rusty side, and I cleaned them up, and I put them away because I wasn't getting to them, wasn't using them. And I coated them with some Axe Wax, and the Axe Wax was something that I felt confident enough that they were going to protect the steel, they're going to protect the Damascus, they're going to protect the wood, and Food Safe makes it a little bit easier for me uh, if they're culinary knives, so that's that. So if you go to axewax.us, put in promo code FULLBLAST10, you will get 10% off your order, which is great because, I mean, they're inexpensive as it is. Uh, Noah and the gang over there are doing a great job, and they want to give you a little bit of some nice discount. So go get yourself up some Axwax, axwax.us, promo code FULLBLAST10. Get yourself 10% off. All right. I'm very excited um, for my next guest, Pat Quinn. This is the return of Pat Quinn. Pat was here last year, almost exactly last year. And he is the he runs the Center for Metal Arts down in Johnstown, PA. He's got a new he's got all new classes ready for 2022. They're very exciting, and uh, I'm grateful that you're here, Pat. And, and welcome. Thanks, thanks so much for having me back. Really appreciate it. Happy Thanksgiving. You too. How did, did you have a nice Thanksgiving? What'd you do? Uh, I went to spend some time with my family in Connecticut, and um, I got to see Aaron and just kind of took a little bit of time away from the shop and um, <clears throat> spent some time with family, ate some good food, you know, normal kind of uh, this time of year sort of thing. It is kind of like a Thanksgiving is almost, especially, a, you know, when you're a maker or when you're doing things, especially with business when you're offering products, it's almost as if Thanksgiving is the starting point of like the craziness. I don't know if it's for you, but like, it's always for me. It's just like, 
your home, you're with family, you're just relaxing, but then you're this looming thought of what's coming next is kind of intense. Yeah. You know, for me, it's, it's, um, since I don't really do a lot of like product sales or anything like that, I don't really get hit with anything, you know, holiday rush related, but, um, as an organization, we do really try to have our next year's schedule worth of workshops released by Thanksgiving. Cause I think it's kind of nice for people to be able to thumb through the catalog or look at the website while they have some time off and maybe consider some classes and stuff. It seems like a good, good time for us to put that information out there while people are relaxing and, and have some time to think, think things over, you know? Well, you were super duper organized and I know that you were, you, you were, you've been on this for, you know, I would say almost a year at least. I mean, it has to be. And the, 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 the fact that you're disciplined enough, it doesn't surprise me that you're able to kind of like organize and make sure that this comes out in a specific time. And I just, I appreciate your diligence to uh, getting all those beautiful classes out. Yeah. I mean, I'm already talking to people about 2023. So as, as soon as it, as soon as it gets released, I'm already working on the next year. So the last episode you were on, it was really the kind of origin story leading you up to Johnstown, PA. You're now you're, you're running the, the Center for Mental Arts down there. And, and the first year, the first few years of classes were just kind of like, I, you could tell that there's this crescendo of building in terms of the classes and, and how they're evolving in your mindset in regards to the kind of classes you're going to be teaching. Mm-hmm. From, the, from the first year of the Center for Metal Arts in Johnstown to now, what was your focal point in terms of what kind of classes you wanted to teach or have taught? Um, do you mean personally or just yeah, kind personally. of like as an organization? Well, both. both. I'm interested personally, but I'm also interested in organization. I would imagine you've had to have these plans of what you're gonna, how you're going to grow as a school. Yeah, you know, I I always have plans, but I'm always just kind of paying attention to, you know, how things want to roll out naturally and stuff. And I think, you know, as I've mentioned, like one of the biggest things that was really helpful for us was the student housing, because I've always been much more attracted to um, longer term educational opportunities. And that has really kind of allowed us to to offer that kind of a thing, you know, in, in New York, it was primarily weekend workshops. And, um, I think my, my desire to offer much more in-depth, longer duration educational opportunities is really kind of the main focus of, of how I've been trying to grow the school. Um, and I think it's been happening somewhat naturally. I mean, obviously there's a lot of hard work involved in it as well, but, the move to Johnstown was just so serendipitous with, with the, the housing and the infrastructure on our campus and all that kind of stuff. So really focusing a lot more on, on the long-term educational opportunities. And, you know, I saw it change from a lot of weekend workshops and then a couple one-week workshops. And then the next year was many more one-week workshops and less weekend workshops. And now we're into the two-week workshops and the six weeks. And I think you know, we're only offering a handful of weekend workshops at this point, And that just seems to be how it, how it wants to go and uh, organically grow, you know? Well, not to mention, as you know, I mean, I think a lot of people, when they think about schools and stuff, they think a lot of metal shops open up shops mm-hmm. and then they'll think, well, we'll teach classes on the weekends. Totally. And then they think 
that you're going to be able to make money on just weekend classes. And it's always just like you're killing yourself all week for doing your, you know, whatever jobs. And then you have these really, these classes and their classes are exhausting. Mm-hmm. And you've been able to kind of figure out this way to have these long-term classes. Mm-hmm. And it just, it feels as though, especially with the housing, you're giving a very um, unique experience in terms of very, um, very concentrated learning, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, and I mean, I saw it <clears throat> happening, you know, um, the weekend workshops, they're kind of, they slowed down a lot for us, and they became harder and harder to fill because uh, more and more are becoming available, and I feel like a lot of a lot of blacksmiths, and I, and I don't say this as a bad thing, I think this is a good thing because it... it um, makes it accessible to a lot more people, but a lot of people do have like a nice garage shop or a a nice shop. It's not really a formal educational shop, but you can invite people in there on the weekends and learn how to make a hammer or some hand tools, you know, or some sort of joinery project or something like that. So because the weekend workshop is becoming more accessible, uh, we, we've noticed a, a decline in enrollment in weekend workshops. So, hmm. um, we've been placing more of our focus and our resources and, and time and energy on the longer term workshops, because that seems to be, uh, attractive to a lot of the people that, um, have already taken weekend workshops or maybe, you know, in, intermediate level, really looking to dive into a project and sort of, you know, learn the ins and outs of something much more technical or time consuming or, you know, um, specific tooling needs and stuff like that. So that makes a lot of sense. And I would think that it's actually probably what you'd prefer. It is because, yeah. Well, why don't you elaborate on that? No, I'm sorry. I kind of, jumped no, I know. I just, I, I would just assume that because, you know, having the, the housing and you end up having this kind of a different relationship with the students as opposed to, you know, they go off to the holiday inn and, you know, or whatever you, you're, you're, you're getting these more in-depth situations and having more than two days, you end up having a much deeper understanding of the project itself. And I would think, and like you said, there's more people teaching one weekend classes yeah. and then you're offering something that a lot of people can't do. Yeah. I mean, I think as, you know, forging sort of grows in popularity and becomes more accessible to, to everybody, there's got to be educational opportunities out there that fit the mold for any, any kind of learning environment that one wants to step into. And I think it's, it's natural for a place like CMA to have um, this sort of transition into more in-depth, um, longer-term workshops because because of the accessibility and the popularity and the growth and everything. And think it's just it's just kind of happening. And you know, as a teacher myself, and when I think about the the path that I've sort of worked at and and chosen in in the craft of forging is is not architectural iron or product based or something like that so it's only natural for me to to work on educational curriculum so you know as the school grows i spend a lot of time thinking like okay what is a what is a valuable way for somebody to spend 5 days at cma and then i i work on it and you know i spend a lot of my time researching 
projects that I think would be great educational experiences for the aspiring blacksmith. So uh, because I'm fortunate enough that CMA is a not-for-profit, we do a certain amount of fundraising and things like that, it, it allows me the freedom to build build classes like like somebody who builds products might work on a new line of furniture or cookware or something like that it i think of it the same way but for me it's not a spatula or a frying pan it's a it's a class it's like what's what's the new product like what is cma's product cma's product is is a is a class is an educational experience so it's important i can't I can't just offer the same things over and over again. So because my shop is split up into two shops, I've got the research facility that Dan and I work in and then the classroom, you know, while the classes are running and that's kind of generating revenue for CMA and everything like that, I'm able to work in the research portion of the shop, creating new projects that I'm interested in teaching the following year, let's say. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a hundred percent sense, and it really is fascinating because you know it's. It, I, I give you a lot of. I give you a lot of. Uh, I give you a lot of credit because your intentions are, feel a lot more in regard. I think a lot of it has to do with because you're a nonprofit and you're able to not have to, you know, worry as much. I'm sure you're you know pulling your hair out like everybody else in mm-hmm. regards to you know filling classes and making sure you get your grants squared away. Right. But you're able to focus strictly on the education, the educational part, as opposed to moving people through classes and making sure they have a good time. Yeah. I really kind of feel like it's almost, it's almost, it's completely different than a shop that will have weekend classes just to see, you know, get people through the class, you know. Yeah, and there, there's value in that too. Which, of course. You know, we're not we're not sitting here saying that's not a good thing to no. do, but. Um, yeah, it is. It is. I, you know, when we were in New York, um, the shop that you're familiar with, it was operated under that model for a little while. And I always noticed, and forgive me if I'm repeating myself from the last time, but it's been a year. Don't worry, repeat <laughs> yourself. They don't remember. These people don't listen to anything. Every time we took an architectural job, the school suffered. Right. And then every time we taught a workshop, we had to put the architectural job on pause. It was a really inefficient way to do either business. And, and it, one was always stealing from the other. And that was part of the catalyst that made me think like, you know, I'm much better at running a school than an architectural iron shop. And I just, you know, kind of, that sort of informed a lot of decision-making when it came to like, you know, where am I going to put all of my effort? But that also is ultimately, you know, probably it was a stressful time, but it also ultimately paid off because it gave you the, you know, the instant understanding that, all right, we got to move and we got to, this is what, this is the direction that I'm going. It seemed like a very appropriate thing as opposed to, you know, spinning your wheels there for years on end, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> I'm, I was looking at the the course curriculum for this year, and it is quite different. Not quite different, but there are additions to the course curriculum this year that are very exciting. Mm. One of the things about teaching, you know, I remember when uh, we were kind of looking at making classes and stuff like that, and I would always say, sometimes you got to have a little bit of bang, you know, you know, give them a little bit more than just do a J-hook class. Or do, sometimes you got to make them a little bit more approachable. Sometimes classes, it helps if they're you know, a little bit more approachable. A lot of times that's why a lot of places teach knife making classes because 
not just the students want, maybe the students aren't just blacksmiths and bladesmiths. Maybe they're just like guy who wants to come home with a knife at the end of a weekend. Mm -hmm. And there is a value to that. But what I notice is, is I feel like, especially this year, some of the classes I was sending messages to Jesse Savage saying, look at this this slingshot class. They're going to forge a slingshot. That sounds so much fun. And I was just like, God damn it. Pat Quinn has figured out a way to make these introductory classes like very, very exciting. Yeah, you know, and I got to give credit to Nate, who who was teaching that slingshot class. I mean, he's he's the one that sort of proposed it. But, um, you know, I put out a call or like a request for for weekend class proposals. And then, you know, I treat them sort of like applications. And I a lot of consideration goes into, you know, which ones we want to run and who we want to follow up with and stuff like that. And um, that wrist rocket workshop. Um, you know, ultimately went with that because I, I, I know Nate and I know he's a great blacksmith and, and a good teacher. And, um, I think when it is a short term workshop like that, it's important to have a tangible object that the, um, student walks away with. And I think like, you know, I could just picture the, there's a lot of things you're going to learn obviously about basic forging techniques, but then when you get the you know, the slingshot at the end and you're shooting cans down at the Sunday after the workshop, I think it's just going to be a fun weekend. So, um, you know, part of that weekend workshop mentality is to just have a good time. It's, it's a, it's a lot about learning, but you know, this one seems to check both of those boxes really nicely. So. But then you juxtapose it with the fact that now you also have the legend Peter Ross coming to teach a box jaw uh, pliers class, mm-hmm. which is just like, I mean, that is, I mean, when you want to talk about blacksmith royalty, American blacksmith royalty, I mean, Peter Ross, I watched a video of Peter Ross making those box, those closed box jaw pliers. Mm-hmm. And it's just like unreal. Yeah. Very, very cool. Um, super excited for that. You know, he, he taught last year because <clears throat> Seth, Seth Gould was scheduled to teach the locks, uh, the locksmithing, the padlock workshop, and, um, you know, everybody's schedules got really crazy and COVID was difficult and stuff. And, um, he had to, he had to step back from that and he had asked Peter Ross if he wanted to substitute. Um, so he was there last year to teach the locksmith workshop. I was really happy to, to host him uh, at the shop and, um, you know, he, really stepped up and without a lot of time to prepare and, and did a, did a good job teaching a super complicated project. But, um, you know, I, the more I get to know him, the the more I really like very much appreciate his background and his knowledge, obviously. So, um, we had a really great time when he was here and discussing, you know, future workshops and stuff. And, course he brings a toolbox full of beautiful tools and i love those box jaw pliers you know they're like a a step above tongs which i'm obviously really obsessed with so um yeah he was into it i proposed that that workshop and he said yeah let's do it so i was really honored to have him back i mean you cannot get a better fill-in sub than Peter Ross. I mean, it's literally like, I mean, for uh, most no. people in while wondering, and Peter Ross was a, just an, if you watched PBS yeah. and they had anything to do with this old house or anything and they needed a blacksmith, they, they had Peter Ross, you know, do, do videos. Right. I mean, it's as if like 
you know, let's say you're going to see a Foo Fighters concert and Dave Grohl says, I can't sing tonight. I'm going to get Mick Jagger to sing instead. I mean, it's like it's such a high level sub in. What was tell me more about the box jaw. Can you just explain what these box jaw pliers, box jaw pliers are like and how you would kind of describe what they what they are? Well, you know, sometimes um the instructors that teach and the topics they teach are things that I really want to learn about as well. Um, and this is one of those. So I'm fascinated to, to see how he does it. So I can also start to make my own um, sets of those, but, you know, I would like to just kind of talk about Peter for a second, because um I'm super fascinated with his with his background at Colonial Williamsburg, being the master smith there for a long time. And as a contemporary blacksmith myself, I never, you know, I'm not too interested in <clears throat> scrolls and leaves and twists and what you know the general public considers like traditional iron work. And certainly, yeah. as it come as it pertains to architectural work. But I have always been interested in tool making because it's a necessary part of the craft to create any kind of work. But you know, his his um, his presentation's really rich, and his background is really unique. And it, I I see a lot of similarities between what he did at Colonial Williamsburg to what we're doing at um, the historic blacksmith shop in Johnstown. Just one was on a colonial level and, and, and ours is on an industrial level, but I draw a lot of similarities between the two. So it's really interesting to, to talk with him about that sort of stuff. And I think that, you know, taking a class with Peter Ross, and this also ties in really nicely with like the student housing and kind of creating community environment at CMA. It's like, so you're in the shop all day with him learning about, you know, forge welding and all that wizard business that he does. And then you go back to the student housing and then you're having dinner with him and you're learning about where he got started and what it was like to work at Williamsburg and, you know, seeing examples of his work and stuff. It's just a really great, really great situation going on over there. Yeah, you're embedded with him. Yeah, totally. So for if you're wondering what box jawed tongs are, I mean, uh, is it, they're not called box jawed tongs. They're, they're called box pliers, right? Box joint, box joint box pliers, yeah. Joint pliers. Mm-hmm. So a pair of tongs is two of the same thing forged together, but a box, <clears throat> a box joint is one is inserted inside the other. Yeah, it's like so a it's pass not, through. It's a pass through, and it, and they look machined, and they're just like I mean I'm sure you even yeah, most of you even have some of them in your like your dad's toolbox that were like machined, mm-hmm. but these are going to be forged, and they're just like I mean I don't even know if there's like a rivet holding them together. Is I don't I have no idea. It's just the, the whole thing was I remember there's a video on YouTube of him making them, and Nick Rossi is just saying whoa. <laughs> That's the whole video. So it's just like if Nick Rossi's saying whoa, then you know, it's like master, but. It's just very exciting to see. I mean, like you, you want to showcase some of the best of the best in the in the knife game. You got Salem Straub, who taught a great class there last year. Mm-hmm. Nick Anger. You got uh, what other knife guys are down there? You, dude. Oh well, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I guess so. Yeah, I forgot. I forgot about that. Yeah, I appreciate you. You. I what? That was not a layup for you, by the way. I was literally <laughs> like thinking of. I don't necessarily consider myself a knife guy these days, but I, but it was. Uh, I'm very grateful 
to you for uh, giving me the, you know, letting me come down for to teach this uh, uh, friction folder class. And one thing I was really fascinated by was he. I tell you what, when you when you put out the call for weekend classes, I looked at the thing and I said, "Well, Jeff, you can either." you know, put something up or, or regret, regret it next year, mm-hmm. regret that you didn't again. And I did. And I, I really appreciated how thorough you were because you know me and you know, I mean, you weren't doing me any favors. You, you, I mean, maybe you did, I don't know, but I mean, I felt like I went through the ringer with you and I appreciated, I appreciated how thorough you were. And one of the things that made me really excited about all your classes was not only were you thorough in regards to the project that I was going to propose, but the relevancy and the teaching that I've done and the philosophy of the teaching, mm-hmm. that was very fascinating. But even before I got to have a you know, conversation with you, your, your feelings towards the philosophy of teaching are so important. And I just kind of would, what, what do you, tell me how you, how you feel about teachers and teaching and, the, and, and what's going on with teaching today. Well, you know, it, it, from my perspective, um, I'm attracted to, you know, first and foremost, professionalism. So um, this day and age, you know, a lot of how you present yourself is, is on social media and Instagram, I think to, to a lesser degree at this point, Facebook, um, but, you know, all those new platforms as well. Um, you know, so I... I I have to consider a lot of things when when inviting instructors, and um, I think about first and foremost, um, you know, how do they present themselves on social media? is is a big thing for me, and it's like, you know, it's got to be active, right? So I've found there's a correlation between how well classes fill versus, you know, to how how active somebody is on social media. Um, so meaning the more active they are, the easier it feels and vice right. the other way around. Um, but, but then it's also, you know, professionalism is, is big for me. So like, I'm really interested in, in how you're presented on social media and, you know, how do you photograph your work? And, you know, is there 10 videos of you getting wasted with your friends in between pictures of, of your forging or, you know, stuff like that's kind of a turnoff or whatever. But so it's really like, obviously, it's about the quality of the work. It's about the quality of the educator, which I don't generally know right off the bat if I haven't witnessed you teach before. So that's always kind of a gamble. But then the presentation, you know, how do you present yourself to the community? Are you are you professional? Are you well-spoken? You know, do you edit your comments so they're not full of typos? It's just stuff like that. And I think it's when I'm trying really hard to create a school that promotes good quality work, you know, the quality has got to come from all aspects of the educational program. And that's, you know, everything from how how good of, of, of a forger are you to, you know, how well do you present your work and yourself kind of thing. So basically you're saying is you're looking for a little discipline. I love discipline. I love discipline and I love structure. And I think you'll see that when you come to CMA. I know a lot of like people who do independent classes or stuff like that, they're used to like, you know, staying up all night and partying and foraging and drinking in the shop. And it's like this, that's not how it goes at CMA. Right. You know, there's a schedule, there's a structure, you're learning, you're creating. It's, 
it's we have a lot of fun. I'm not trying to say it's not fun, but it's it's a serious educational environment. It's like I, I want it to be, you know, treated and ran just like any other real school, you know? Well, there's two things I want to get to, which is makes it very interesting to me because I, I completely appreciate what you're, what you're, what you've said. I've been trying to push, there's this, it's very interesting because there's different types of people who are probably were taking your class, the classes at your place, or for that matter, the New England School of Metalwork. There are people who are interested in it as a hobby and then there are people who are interested in it as a profession. Uh-huh. And I think that what happens is, especially with social media, and you see people learning on YouTube or you, YouTube videos, or you, you're learning the this and that and the thing, there's this, there's this, and then there's also a lot of voices out in the world mm-hmm. in, in particular business who say things along the lines of, don't do it if you're not, if you don't love, if you're not having fun, don't do it. Mm-hmm. I get that in the knife business. That's like the biggest thing is a lot of the, a lot of master bladesmiths will say, if it isn't fun, don't do it. And I feel like there's this, almost this, and it might be a social, uh, social thing in general and civilization. I, we could go into that too, but I feel like there's the word discipline is almost considered to be um, like the party pooper. It's the, it's the, you know, the parents are home. It's the teachers here. It's the not, it's the not fun time of life. Mm -hmm. And I feel like people need to really reconsider the way that, especially as a blacksmith or as a bladesmith or a maker in general to embrace discipline because that's how you get to the goal that you want to be. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's how you, you can really advance in the craft and it's, you know, it's my responsibility to give you, if you come to CMA, a worthwhile educational experience that you're going to benefit from. And if it's, you know, like loosey goosey, like who cares about this? Let's maybe forge that, you know, that's not fair to the student, right? So classes cost money and you often have to take off of work or, you know, leave your family for a week or something. It's not, you know, I got to be respectful of people's time and and the investment that they're making into a class at CMA and that's why CMA is disciplined and structured and I I think that you know both of those sort of have like a almost like a militant connotation to them and it's not like that we have a blast you ask anybody who takes a class there but it is very structured for learning but it, when you say militant, I understand what you're saying because a lot of people, and it's in their regular life too, there's this idea that if it's not fun, don't do it. But then when you start to talk, well, you need a little bit of discipline in your life, all of a sudden that means fun is over, mm-hmm. which is not the case. It's like, I mean, blacksmithing, as you know, you're, I mean, you're one of the best blacksmiths in the country for sure. You, people don't realize that it's like, it's, very, it's one directional. You know, it's like you can't get to the next step without getting to the step before that. Mm -hmm. And there's so many of these moments of discipline in terms of understanding what you're going to do, understanding, really understanding what you're going to do, and then understanding it more in between the heats. And you have this time that is lapsing as soon as the steel comes out of the fire. And that even with knife making, people don't even realize, a lot of knife makers don't realize, is every time you put it in the steel in the fire, no matter how hot it gets, you're losing carbon, you're losing time, you're right. losing energy, you're losing material. And I feel like there's this lack of understanding that embracing this degree of science and discipline and technique 
will propel you much farther. Totally. And it's why I work hard on creating education. And it's like, I don't feel comfortable teaching somebody something that I don't know in depth about. So that's why when I come up with a class, like something I'll be teaching whatever next year, uh, like the file vice or something, it's like, you know, I make that over and over and over again. And I basically teach myself how to communicate about what I'm doing. A lot of us take it for granted, right? You can, you can pull your iron out of the fire and you can walk over to the hammer and make a, make a shape or create a hole or whatever. But what's hard about being an educator is taking what's in your brain that you do as second nature and verbalizing that to a student. And so, you know, when I develop a class, let's say, and I get somewhere with it and I get excited about a project as a potential educational opportunity, I'll do it over and over and over again. In my notebook, I'm taking notes and I'm writing down why I'm doing things. And I'm, you know, the second time around, I realize, oh, you know, if I had done this step a little sooner, I could have saved a little time here and this, that, and the other thing. So, you know, it is, it is all important like that. I, I've been in enough classes to feel uncomfortable when someone has really doesn't understand what's happening. Like when a student just, maybe it's because maybe they're not, maybe they don't like to, maybe they're not fully invested in the class or maybe the teacher's not really kind of giving you the understanding that they need. But like I've stopped classes to just like circle on back to one person to be like, I need you to, I want you to know exactly what we're doing. I want you to know completely. Right. Because you won't under you. I don't want you flailing. I don't want you. Oh, I thought you meant it to do like this, or I thought it was supposed to be like that, or oh, I thought when I saw you do it, I thought it was like this. And I that the most important thing is this incredible understanding. And it's like I, I think that there's a lot of people. I used to make jokes that like, you know, there's there's the guys in the Carhartt pants with their coffee, nodding their head while the instructor's doing a demo. You know. Mm-hmm. And they're nodding and they're oh yes as if they're like a uh, as if they're like a c- contemporary mm-hmm. and then when it comes down to the, when it's their turn they turn to you and say what did he do again yeah that's like old school that's been like forever yeah my favorite thing is when I look out at the class and everybody's got a notebook out oh yeah I just love that so much you know because there's all different kinds of students and some retain it without taking notes and some don't but um, you, you get a lot of you get a lot of, um, I think you retain the information a lot better when you start to write it down and it shows a level of commitment to the craft, I think, when I see a notebook. But people don't realize that there are these, and this is, now we can get into, we can get into YouTube at some point, but one thing is, is like, there are things that you just can't know unless you're right there and you take, it's always, it's usually, usually, in my experience, it's, people not understanding how to hold the steel against the anvil or it's like how to hit half off half on or it's these minor tiny little things that are missed that are always the thing that gets them caught up that you don't learn on youtube you can't learn on youtube it's these things that you kind of need to be in you need to like you can't just stand in the same spot in the class too you might have to just kind of move over a little bit and get a better angle in regards oh i see so he's hitting it halfway on halfway off and then or me oh he's 45 degrees 
off the corner. Oh, but it's not a sharp corner. It's a rounded corner. It's those, it's those little tiny things that you, you write down that all of a sudden that it just kind of makes everything click. Yeah. It's the, it's the subtle nuances, you know, that you can really convey in an in-person educational environment. Um, and you know, there's a lot of, um, detailed education on YouTube. And I think like we've even done that sort of online workshop thing through our website. And I've, you know, I do the best I can to explain in as great of detail as possible, but it's as the teacher, you, you know, you notice things about the student that you can then, you know, help them with, like you're saying the angle of your hammer or this, that, the other things, things that when they're learning on their own, in front of a digital screen, they don't under they they might not pick up on the subtle angle of their hammer or this that or the other thing that when the instructor's kind of like walking through the workshop checking out everybody's work they they see that and then you can kind of cater the educational experience to the individual it's it's much more personal. It, I, I kind of say it like if you got a membership to a gym. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you want to get a trainer to show you what you're doing too, right? Because they can kind of you know show you. All right, this isn't what you're doing because there's you know there's people take a class and then or they watch a YouTube video. Next thing you know, they're calling up wherever buying you know used anvils and like a, a couple hammers from Home Depot, and then all of a sudden they think, okay, now I'm doing it, and I, and, I, and it, you get the feeling that um, that there's this there's this there's this uh, there's a lack, and I I wonder I wonder because and I wonder what you think. What do you think the hesitancy of taking classes is? I'm not. I'm not trying to trick you. I wonder because I think about like the it. pros and cons of of what it is and what do you think that is. I think that oh, there's a lot, a lot of things that potential students consider when taking a workshop, and then things that might cause hesitation: uh, the time commitment and the money. And that's a big deal. I get it. Like, it's hard to do that. So that's why, you know, at CMA, I take the classes seriously because I understand the investment you made in us to come to the workshop. But then I think also forging is inherently this craft where you're able to do everything you need. You can make your own tools. You can make your own fixtures, jigs, this, that, and the other thing. So you're kind of, you're raised in the foraging community to think you can do it yourself, everything. And, and I appreciate that a lot of the times, like it's pretty common to be, see something and be like, Oh, I can figure that out. Yeah. And it's true. A lot of times you can, but if you want to get to a place or a skill set or an experience level, you. I think it's you do yourself a favor if you pepper in some in-person education. You know, because you, it's so, such a you. The steps that you make towards professionalism or intermediate, or you know, the work you want to make is going to happen a lot faster. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated that you didn't say people. People don't. I, the time and the money, obviously. I would have th- my my first thing would was you know regardless of the money and the and the time it's always like well I don't want to take introductory classes I want to come in and make a hammer 
I would think that that's something that you come across a lot. I do. I do. I, I come across that a lot. Um, and it's just, it's just a question of, you know, navigating it and reading the student. And um, you're, you're going to have that in any, any craft, I feel like, in, in any educational environment. Um, it's, a, it's a tough one, but... yeah. You know, I I do the six week workshop or whatever, and um, you we get a lot of students with the varying degrees of skills of experience levels and things like that. And no matter where you are in the in your development as somebody who forges, I I start you off in the beginning, and we just do all these exercises at the anvil, and then. As soon as you get it, I make you do 10 more. And then, you know, the next one builds off the first one and so on and so forth. And this year was the first year that I was really able to kind of like dive into that methodology of teaching. And as we progressed into the fifth and sixth week, I noticed the students doing things and, and creating forgings with ease and I really think it had to do with the the exercises that I put them through in the beginning and I take like a class like like tong making which is something that I'll teach on a Saturday and Sunday like let's say you come to learn how to make a pair of flat jaw tongs or whatever and I see I see the struggles over and over and over again and I know how to usher you through a pair of flat jaw tongs so that you have a good time, you learn, and you walk away with some tongs that hold the material. But having the students go through a week, a week and a half of forging exercises without a tangible object that they even care about, I, th- I just I saw them making tongs, and they were the best tongs I've ever had students make. Wow. And they just, they just, things just clicked, you know what I mean? And I was like, this is amazing. This, this, what you said brings me back to our first conversation, and I wonder if that the idea of making something and making it again and improving on it, I wonder if that came from when you were a blacksmith in Brooklyn, and you were making, I don't remember, I think you said you were making leaves or something like that, some small objects, and it was this concept of the repetition, and I wonder if some of that came from back then. It did. I think we're... I think you're referring to uh, Vermont when I worked at that production facility in Vermont. Okay, yes, Vermont, Vermont. Vermont. Yeah, Sorry. totally. Just making making things like fifty at a time and and stuff like that, and that that trained trained my eye, trained my arm. I think a lot of forging is is like muscle memory, and it's like if you can't do you know a four sided taper, two sided taper, octagonal taper. Those are the backbones of everything else I'm going to teach you. So we're not going to progress until you have a solid understanding of those things. And that, that was really helpful. And, you know, I always get self-conscious, like, oh, the students are going to hate this, you know. And then, yeah, they put up with it in varying degrees of, <laughs> of frustration or not. But in the end, they all came up to me and they were like, man, that was that two week. Like, I, I get it. I understand why you did that. It was, it was really, a really excellent feeling. <laughs> this kind of makes me 
wonder one of the things that I always think about is I think about the history of the modern day blacksmith and for years when Jesse Savage was doing his podcast with Rick, uh, the Blacksmith's Pub, and Jesse would call me up and he says, "Do you have any questions for this guy?" Do you, I, when you were first on, he sent me questions. He asked me, he asked me to be, help him write questions forever, and I've always my favorite question that I've always asked is, "What is the role of the modern day blacksmith?" And I want, I've always wondered it because it always seems as though, and, I, and one of the things that's always driven me crazy is, and I always look at the history, the the, the long term, the, the long encompassing history of the blacksmith and the fact that you know it's coming back but for years there was i mean it was so you know society and civilizations all across the world were dependent on the blacksmith and the fact that i feel like you know maybe industrial revolution was one of the reasons why you know you you, you're cutting out the humanity you're cutting out the labor you're able to do the products cheaper and you're able to kind of you kind of remove some of the labor and then there's the loss of technique but also there was also, I know this for knowing a lot of welders and stuff like that, sometimes that there's this lack of wanting to teach, to, to, to bring the, uh, the information forward because of the lack of, you know, job. You know, you don't want to lose your job. If you teach the guy behind you how to do your job and all of a sudden you lose your job. I feel like there's a lot of so, um, social reasons why blacksmithing has, you know, lost a lot of levels compared to what it was a couple hundred years ago. I'm grateful to you for the way you think about the teaching and the importance of how it's taught. I appreciate that because I look back <clears throat> at my career as somebody who forges and I, I look at work that I've made and, you know, the beginning of Carbondale or all throughout my experience at Carbondale. And, um, you know, at that, that point I was like, oh, I got this. This is pretty, pretty fun. And I can make a lot of stuff and make some nice tools and, not only did the tools that I made at Carbondale, they're, they're not on the varsity rack, tool rack anymore at CMA, um, but they also, you know, I've learned a lot about technique and technical skills and how to move the material efficiently and, uh, you know, get it where it needs to go, when and where to use certain shapes to achieve certain forgings that, you know, I, I kind of struggled with when I look back at my Carbondale experience. And this is all like why my notebook is huge and I've got files and files and files of, of things that I've created and how I've created them and how they've advanced and developed. And it's, I think it's important, you know, and I, I feel like I owe I owe the craft, you know, the service to at least tell people what I've learned throughout my right. career, you know? But I mean, what, how do you see, I mean, I, like I said, I mean, how do you see it developing, you know, coming back in terms of, you know, the, it'll never be, it'll never be what it was when there was a blacksmith in every town and they depended on, you know, the village depended on the blacksmith to make all their hardware or make their tools or make all their pans and their forks and their, you know, the, it'll never be that, it'll never be at that point. We'll never see that those years again where, you know, societies depend on the blacksmith. No, you know what it is now? It's a high end craft, I think. And it used to be like a utilitarian craft. And obviously there was levels of finish that you could pay for your local blacksmith to create, depending on if you were using a tool for the garden, it didn't really matter. But if you had 
you know, hinges you on it on your Dutch blanket chest or whatever, they might have gotten filed bright. But forging now, because it's not necessary uh, for everyday life to have a village blacksmith, um, it is necessary for everyday life, but that's another topic of conversation. But, um, and then if, I, I'd love to sit down with you all day and talk about society, but we don't really have to get into that now. But well, when I like... come down and when I come down in the spring, <laughs> we're going to do a live broadcast, yeah. and it's going to be a live podcast, and it might be long. Well, I mean, we live in a we live in a throwaway culture, right? And people that buy forged items from a blacksmith now aren't aren't buying items they need for their homestead to function. They're they're buying a frying pan that they want to last the rest of their life because they're sick of buying a new Teflon pan every two years. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So that's kind of the role of the modern day functional blacksmith. But, you know, to me, it's, it's an outlet for sculpture, right? And the tool making is necessary portion of making sculpture. And it's taught me a lot about technique that I then try to impart that knowledge onto my students or whatever. But, um, yeah, it's, it's a great outlet for, for sculpture of which is, in the grand scheme of how old blacksmithing is, thinking about it as a, a vehicle for sculpture, an outlet for sculpture, is a very new concept. I wonder if it's the human connection as opposed... I wonder if it's... Because when you're talking about the outlet for sculpture, you're talking about you know things that people want, the high-end objects. It's always wrapped around the person who's made... the artisan who's making it. You know, when you're buying a sculpture, rarely do not, or you're buying a piece of a painting, or you're buying a piece of sculpture. It's rare that you don't really know the name or who the person is. I mean, you're you're kind of you're you're supporting a person who's putting who's manifesting out something in their minds, you know, to you know, with their hands, and you're you're creating a relationship with the artist by having it. You 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 know this person, maybe you follow them or whatever. And I feel like it's the same way with the blacksmithing thing, besides the fact that it's just this is something I'm gonna have for the rest of my life. A lot of people who because it's not like there's not a blacksmith on every town and you there's not as many, you know, you know if you're buying a high end knife from Nick Anger, mm. you know it's his. It, there's no there's no not knowing that it's Nick Anger's knife. Right. You know, there's no not knowing that's a Salem that when you buy Salem Straub's knife, you're telling everybody, I got a knife from Salem Straub. Mm-hmm. You're not no one's just like, I don't know, I got this guy from, from you know the, with a mustache I, you know you don't do that <laughs> right. and i feel as though that's the role of the modern day blacksmith is because with the with how the industrial revolution kind of took away a lot of the the work of the, the modern day blacksmith it, it it is taking away that humanity now the role of the modern day blacksmith is to bring that humanity back and bring that humanity to the consumer yeah i, I agree i agree because I mean, like you, when you look at your classes, mm-hmm. here's a great example. You go to college. Let's let's just take let's just take the CMA to to like let's just say NYU for just for just for argument's sake. I know they're not college. One's a college, one's not a college. It's fine. When you're looking at like we're I'm about to we're about my kid is about is getting ready to be be a senior. We're looking at college. We're already thinking about you know make college plans. We have got a couple trips coming up just right. to get her looking at colleges and stuff like that. We're not looking at the student. We're not looking at the teachers. We're, there's not a there's not a day there's not a school that we've looked at where I, where I've said, well, let me see these teachers and look at the res- recommendations. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the teachers at this, when you look at the class at the CMA, mm-hmm. you look at this like you know 
murderer's row of incredible teachers that people want to learn from as opposed to not just CMA, but it's like you are create. that's the humanity there. It's like, you know, okay, Peter Ross, I know about Peter Ross, Nick Angier, I know about him. Mm-hmm. I know about like, you know, it's, so it, maybe that is the role of the modern day blacksmith is to kind of bring it, the, that human element back. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot to that. And I think forging inherently has that, that human touch to it. And you could ask 10 blacksmiths to make the same item and you'd have 10 different items. And I think that's a really special part of it. That brings me to something that you do that is very, I don't know if it's unique, but it's, it's unique to a lot to art. It's a, a unique to, it's a unique to a lot of things except for a one glass floor I know. But when you're making things, hammers or tongs, when you have someone helping you or working with you, you have them put their touch mark on too. Yeah. That's a very generous thing to do. Yeah, I mean, it's always been a team effort to me. And I, and I always see, see every tool or whatever as a story, a memory, and an experience. And if somebody else is involved heavily in that experience, I want their mark on that tool so that every time I pick up that tool, I remember them. I remember the time we spent together at the anvil, and I remember that experience. It's the humanity, Pat. <laughs> it has to be what it is. It's, it's the human memory. It's the human idea. It's, the, it's bringing back the humanity. One of the things that fascinates me nowadays is the role is is the role of the purveyor of equipment because nowadays it is very easy to it, it, you know years ago it wasn't as easy to have welders in, at your house mm-hmm. it wasn't easy it wasn't easy to have you know presses it wasn't easy to have uh, all these equipment that can allow you to kind of cut down time mm-hmm. cut down energy cut down efficiency so what I'm noticing, especially when we, when we get on Knife Talk, we get this a lot, is if you were to get a power hammer or a press, which would you get? And there's a lot of this. I, I always think to myself, a lot of people, there's a cart before the horse thing where people are, are, are depending on the equipment to get them past a, a problem as opposed to the technique. And it's, and it's, I'm starting to the point now where people, you can get CNC machines that could fit on your desk. You can get a torch, you know, plasma cutters that's hooked to a CNC machine. You can get stuff plasma cut out in your garage. Couldn't happen again. It's almost as if there's a secondary industrial revolution that is trying to, you know, keep people from doing, you know, the hard stuff, the hard, the hard labor stuff. And they're, they're cutting back and they're, you're once again, you're, it's almost like this loss of, of the humanity, the humanity of the struggle of working. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's almost like a technology revolution, not an yeah. industrial revolution. I always yeah. like, I think it's getting pretty popular now. I've seen it on more than one occasion, but people will write like 3D printer on their power hammer or their anvil or something. I always found that to be kind of fun and humorous. Well, I mean, when we, when uh, John and Cliff and Jesse and I were at a maker, we were at Maker Fair a number of years ago, everything was all 3D printers and, and everything was all high tech. And, and we were, you know, telling people we were the original 3D printers. Oh, right. You know, yeah, it was yeah. like, because it's because it is it's but once again it's like this all this technology is allowing people to kind of circumvent technique yeah and I, and it brings me back to 
you know, all right, you can go get yourself a press. You know, Coal Ironworks makes this amazing press. I met the guys at Coal Ironworks. They make this incredible press that has like a CNC on it. So now you don't need kiss blocks anymore. So you can use this press and you can punch in that I just want to forge this, you know, I want to forge these reins down to, you know, three eighths by, you know, three quarters. And then you can have it, you know, you don't, there's no kiss blocks. There's no thinking anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's almost as if it's like, it's and it's convenient, especially if you're in you know doing high end. You know it's convenient. It's 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 incredible technology. Those guys are you know whatever they're doing, they're doing an amazing job. Mm-hmm. But it is one of those things which you wonder if we're losing that ability to kind of learn the struggle of well maybe I need to make a kiss block and how do I make a kiss block and kind of like preventing people from having to deal with problem solving. Yeah, I mean you know. <laughs> Kiss blocks, dude. I, I spent half my life making kiss blocks, I feel like, because they're disposable and I depend on them heavily to create the work I'm creating. But I also, you know, teach, you know, I teach this way, but I also forge this way. I've certainly got a saddle that goes on my bottom die that I can bolt some kiss blocks into or whatever. But um, oftentimes I'm using them handheld, uh, handheld kiss blocks on a stick. And that allows you a lot of flexibility and freedom to go from, you know, five sixteenths to three quarter if you're making flat stock or, or whatever. And um, I don't really know what the technology is like for those um, presses. It sounds pretty cool, but um, I think the more technology gets developed and introduced into the forging process, the more you lose the characteristic of the, of the blacksmith. I can't disagree with I agree with you 100%. I almost said I can't disagree with you more. <laughs> I can't agree with you more because I, one of the things that kind of gets me not crazy but like it, I don't even want to say it's a pet I don't I don't like to use the expression pet peeve because for me pet peeve was like what the Playboy playmates used to write in their centerfolds. Oh. So like when 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 people say this is my pet peeve I it brings me back to like you know the Playboy centerfold it's just like that's for her not for you. You don't have a pet peeve. But getting, you know, people getting involved with power hammers and presses before they have a uh, understanding of, you know, forging on an anvil and having that understanding. I, I always feel like it's super card before the horse. Like, it's almost like I kind of, I shudder a little bit. Like, I hear people say, oh, if I only had a power hammer, then I can make this Damascus. And it's one of those things that it's a, it's a, it's just like I kind of like shudder a little bit. I do too. I do too. I, I sort of had that upbringing where you know at the production shop they they sat me down in front of a power hammer before I ever swung a hammer at a at an anvil but um so I'd go go to my shop after work at a production shop and I'd kind of reverse engineer you know a power hammer forging on the anvil and try to figure out how to do it by hand but you know a lot of my teaching career I, I taught at the anvil and I've taught with strikers and I think um, a lot of that has to do with, you know, oftentimes not having enough power hammers for students or, you know, the shop, maybe it's a traditional shop and there's no power hammers or there's eight students and one hammer, something like that. You know, the whole mindset that you want to make the class accessible and you want the student to learn the technique and then go home maybe and get their buddy and then he can strike for him or she can strike for him or whatever. And then they can create the work without needing all this fancy tools and equipment. My, my teaching philosophy has almost 180 
from that at this point where over the past two years, I've really been putting a lot of emphasis on power hammer technique um, for education, like using the hand tools like round back flatters and fullers and why do you use fullers here and when is a fuller appropriate when is a flatter appropriate how do you create these tools um handheld kiss blocks bottom swages like all this stuff because i look and you know whatever it's all on social media now but like i i cannot believe the amount of power hammers that people are buying right now and you know, I'm friends with James Johnson from Enyang, and I feel like every time I turn around, they're selling a container of hammers. And I, right. I'm, that's great, you know, more power to you. And then, I, and then I'm like, holy smokes, like, who, who's buying these hammers? And do they understand that it's actually like an industrial piece of equipment? How, do they have any training on it? And then I, I, have to, I had to stop following a lot of people because I... I thought that it, what they were doing looked kind of dangerous and I was afraid they were going to hurt themselves. So, you know, I've taken that feeling that I have and thought, well, I used to think, and, and other educators I know have this mentality where it's like, no, I want to teach it at the anvil because I want it to be accessible to the broadest possible audience. And now I'm like, well, I think the broadest possible audience all has power hammers at this point. So, wow. Like, I want to teach you how to use a power hammer. And when you take a power hammer class with me or with Haley or whoever, you know, we teach you how to use flat dies. It's like flat dies expand the metal in all directions unless you know how to use the edges or, you know, use hand tools to get the material to move exactly where you want to go. Can you confidently push as well as you can pull? Like, all that kind of stuff. It's like... You can do so much more on a hammer than just pull a taper. And I see lots of people pulling tapers. And that's great, but like, I want, I want, you know, I've learned a lot recently that there's so much more that you can do with flat dies on a hammer. And I'm very interested. And if you take a class with me, this is kind of a shameless plug. I'll go over all that stuff. You kind of blew my mind a little bit, but I I was in the same situation where I thought, who the hell's buying all these Anyangs? Yeah. Like, I remember, I mean, you know, when I was at the Center for Metal Arts is when social media kind of started. And I, you did, I didn't join forums. I didn't really give a shit too much about that. But as, as I think within the last, like, three or four years, everyone's got an Anyang. Yep. Like, I'm stupefied. Yep. And it's like God bless, God bless him. I mean, you know, God bless uh, J- uh, J- James. Yeah. You know, God bless him because he, he's got he got he's got a. I mean, I heard him on the Blacksmith's Pub talking about how he's got a. You know how he, it's it's not easy bringing those things over. Mm-hmm. God bless him. I am I am amazed at how many people, like you said, ha- have them and are scared. Now you actually touched on something that really is something that I'm very crazy about, which is. You know, we talked about YouTube a little bit, but I mean, going back into YouTube, I feel like there's safety issues in general that a lot of people who have never worked in metal shops along other side, uh, along other people, are ve- are being very dangerous. And what I've been noticing, especially in YouTube videos, especially from guys either doing DIY style videos or just doing a here, I'm going to make this, and that's just the way it is. There is 
this there's this mindset is like, well, it's my shop and I can do I don't want to wear, you know, eye protection or wear eye protection. What I've been noticing is that there's this generation now who are being inspired by other, you know, blacksmiths or makers or it doesn't even matter have to be blacksmith. It just they're 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 learning by what they're seeing, not by what they're being told. Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing such recklessness around around industrial equipment, but also around just even you know right angle grinders. Yeah, it's crazy. It, it's crazy. It's crazy. And, and I I don't wish any injury upon anybody. And I hope that and hope that it never happens. But I sometimes I'm. I look around out there on on the old Soch, and I'm just like, "Holy smokes, what is going on out there?" But you know, I hope I hope it's all good. <laughs> well, I mean, you know what the craziest thing is is, and you can you can always tell when someone's never been in a metal shop before because the grinder, like the 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 four and a half inch grinder, yeah, people don't realize that you're supposed to aim the sparks. People don't realize that you're supposed to like kind of know where you are mm-hmm. and that you're not supposed to be rooster tailing sparks all over the shop because you have other people there or there maybe there's expensive equipment that you shouldn't be showing shooting sparks on. Mm-hmm. And I've been in places or I've seen places where people are going back and forth with the grinder and there is like a 360 arc of sparks. And it's like, I'm just like, you've never been in a metal shop before. You don't understand safety. You remember there's a guy, maybe there's a guy 20 feet away from you who doesn't want you shooting sparks up his back. Well, didn't, uh, didn't Fortune Fire teach everybody that sparks are cool? Dude, well, I mean, once again, I mean, <laughs> I, the, 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 I, make, I hate the red angle grinder because I just, you know, I did like 25 years of the red angle grinder. I was just like, as soon as I can get rid of it, I'll get rid of it. Yeah. But at the same time. If you're using a grinder in my shop, you're doing something wrong, basically. I, 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 it's, but at the same time, they're so inexpensive. They're so easy to use. But the amount of people who are just using them incorrectly and just. I mean, they're throwing sparks everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere. Yeah. Like at audiences, at demos. Like they're not even thinking. And it, it, it drives me crazy. And then there's people who won't wear ear protection. People won't wear eye protection. People won't wear. And then they're, they're, they're learning this stuff based on what they're seeing on social media. And it's just the witnessing. It's not even just, not, you don't have to, if a guy says, all right, you wear eye protection, then doesn't wear eye protection, you're going to see the guy not wearing eye protection. I, it gets me crazy. I, I agree, dude. I feel the same way you do. I don't really see a lot of the grinding, but um, I, I see a lot more more power hammer use that um, makes me pull my collar and go like, you know, a little bit. Like, but like what? Uh, you don't have to say names, but give me examples of some of the things you're seeing that's concerning. Uh, one thing I see is just kind of like, you know, using a using a hammer. Um, over its capacity maybe and the stuff's kind of jumping around and bound. i don't know it's it's i don't know i'd rather not really say okay that's fine yeah. i understand it, it it one of the things that is important is the fact that you're giving the opportunity for people who have power hammers to l- l- use them in a proper manner and you know hone their power hone their you know technique because that's one of the big th- i mean in this country i mean how many places are teaching power hammer techniques Right, and I think that's the takeaway here. Like, I I know no, none of the listeners and stuff really want to hear about people, you know, maybe injuring themselves or whatever. I think that the takeaway is that I've 
and I know other people as well, are putting a lot of time and energy into power hammer education because of how accessible power hammers are now, which is a great thing. And I think a lot of people would, would really benefit from some tutorials on, on how to use a hammer efficiently and safely. And get all the juice out of the orange. That's right. I mean, you're getting the proper squeeze. Right. So, so that way that you're maximizing your use. Right. So getting back to your classes. Oh, actually, you know what? I want, before I get back to your classes, I, one thing that I've always noticed, and I wonder what your take is, is the concept of Damascus. Mm -hmm. Most blacksmiths don't fool around with Damascus at all or have no real interest in it. And it's been one of the things that knife makers are always surprised. When I talk to them, they're always surprised that, I mean, I never really heard about Damascus until I started making knives. Right. I, we did, it just was, it show, we show, I showed zero interest, and I, to this day, I have very little interest in it other than, other than the fact that I can make more money on a knife. Mm -hmm. Why do you think the blacksmiths don't care as much? Not don't care, but like Damascus is kind of secondary to what they're doing. You think you mean blacksmiths as opposed to knife makers? Or? Yeah, yeah. Because a lot of knife makers would think, well, if you're a blacksmith, why don't you just make Damascus all day? Well, I don't really see the point. I mean, it doesn't have it doesn't have a a use for most of the stuff that blacksmiths make. You know, I always thought it was because blacksmiths like the outside, and they're far more interested in the outside and all what it's what, the movement of the steel and what it's been doing as opposed to kind of like what's all the way in the middle dude i'm way into what's in the middle like to me my philosophy is first you forge the core and then you forge the surface so i'm always focusing on what's in the middle of the bar to get my shape to be what it needs to be and then Surface quality is very important to me in my work. So after I get the forging where it needs to be, then I work on the surface. So I'm, I'm definitely interested in the core for sure. For tool making, that makes a lot of sense. And even sculpture and like just any kind of big, big forging where you don't want to get the, the mouse hole in the end or they call it like a cat's butt or something um, or, you know, the fish lips, they call it, or anything like that. It's like, that's a product of not enough heat or not enough power, and often a combination of the two. And if, if you get the core to go where it needs to go, and then, then you can focus on surface. Um, so what you said just kind of made me think about that and wanted, wanted to mention it. But I just, you know, I think Damascus is, is great for... Um, you know, objects, precious objects like knives and and stuff like that. But for the general blacksmith, I just, I don't see the point. I don't really know. It doesn't really offer much to the product except for surface adornment, unless it's part of the structure of an edge of a tool or a knife or something like that. That's the, the, the best, that's the best description I've ever heard from someone who, because I know a lot of blacksmiths who kind of feel the same way. Yeah. There's almost this, there's almost this sense of like, there's almost a sense of pressure that like, once you start to make knives, you have to do black, uh, to do Damascus. And most of my friends make Damascus. And I honestly, I just, I, I, I drag my feet on it because I would prefer to be a better blacksmith. Mm -hmm. Like that's always to me more important is being better at forging before I worry about 
you know, Damascus, it's just, for some reason, it's always been one of those things. I get messages saying, well, so when are you going to start making more Damascus? I'm like, I've made like three billets and one of the billets was at your shop, Mm -hmm. you know, with Aaron Wilburn. Right. But like, I can count on, I can count on one, I can count on, count on half a hand on how many billets I've made just because I just, I'm not that interested. Right. Yeah. I'm not either. I don't, you know. But that's like a standard thing for a lot of blacksmiths. I mean, you talk to Jesse, you don't give a shit about it. You don't give a shit about making Damascus. <laughs> you don't give a shit. He's. I don't think. He, I think maybe he's done it a couple times just to try it out. But like, he doesn't care that much. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you put Damascus on something that doesn't need Damascus, it's it's like bedazzling your truck. You know, I don't yeah. know what's the point. I agree. I, that's one of the things I always want. I always like to hear what how blacksmiths think about. You know the idea of Damascus because it is it's just like it is in it's it's amazing and don't get me wrong I think it's incredible and whoever can do when you do it and when it looks great it's I mean what Salem Straub is doing especially I had a real good conversation with him in regards to the design element and how he makes the design element of his Damascus interact with the way he does his S grinds yeah. and and there's this how he does that bar, he does the bar on the spine and the bar on the edge, and then it stops at the at bottom of the S-grind. It is very, very purposeful. Hi. And it makes me wonder, it makes me think about you in terms of the, 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 in terms of your sculpture. We could just talk a little bit about your sculpture. Your sculpture is so beautiful. And it one of the biggest disappointments i've had and this is i don't know i I don't know if you probably remember this or don't was a number of years ago i was asked to find five artists to be in an art show in our town and i asked you to be in in the art show and i submitted all the the i've submitted of all my five to this jury i only got one in Mm -hmm. and i was furious and embarrassed and i was humiliated to the point where i wasn't going to let you get a letter without me calling you. Mm -hmm. And I remember feeling like I'm calling Pat because I'm fucking furious. He didn't get picked. Mm -hmm. And do you remember that? I do. That's kind of how we met. I think. Oh, well, we we might've met before. I, maybe that is how we met, but it is one of the things that like, it was a complete humiliation to me because I felt like they made a huge mistake. When I look at your work, the hardest, the, when I look at your work, it's so, the designs, the forging, the connections, and the lines, and the what it's saying—it's so, it's so elegant. And you've figured out a way to have forging be uh, top billing to these beautiful sculptures without it being, you know, a beautiful forging. It's like they are sculpture. You've taken it out of it being a craft, and you've created sculpture. Mm-hmm. Tell me, talk to me about the, how you're thinking about your sculpture. Um, I, you know, forging has always been to me a way to make a way to work metal in in three dimensions. And ultimately, you know, you're, you're altering and changing and manipulating this cross section of an existing bar of steel and I've always felt like well I don't think I've always felt like this but like at this point I think a lot about you know what I want to create and what what is it inspired by and what are the shapes involved in the composition and the lines and everything and 
And I often choose forging to create some of those because uh, you simply can't cut it out of a flat sheet or grind it out of a square bar. Does that make sense? Yes, 100%. Right, it's like, it's like tong, you know, and I'm bringing it back to tongs, but it's like a good, a good tong. It's like you can't laser cut that out of a sheet. You know, the, the, the three-dimensional quality of the forging is what gives it strength. And it's the only way to really do that tool justice. But when, you, when I think about sculpture, it's a similar thought process without the function. It's like, you know, I can see this shape that I want to create, and I'm being really vague about what that is because I'm in between, you know, inspirations and shit like that. But, um, I, you know, I use forging to create this three-dimensional shape because it's the right, it's the right way to get that shape, basically. But one of the things about your work, it, well, the work that I've seen, is there are these incredible nods to industry. Right. There are these incredible nods to industrial connection. Right. Whether there be spacers or rivets or, you know, there is such a, there is such a, a nod is the right word. It's almost like a love note to industry. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I always wanted to like, well, obviously I'm just head over heels inspired by industrial forging industrial processes when it comes to working with steel as a material. Um, so I do include a lot of that in my work and kind of my sort of sick way of using it is like, I want to take this material that has for its entire life been this huge, heavy, clunky thing that gets rusty and use it in a way where the um the end product or the final outlet of it or whatever is a finely crafted object that you'd see on a white pedestal or in a nice living room or kitchen or something like that Does that make sense yeah 100 percent. so i you know i draw from all these industrial processes techniques and materials and then i kind of take them out of context like i'm not creating bridges or buildings or whatever, you know, I'm trying to create fine art or sculpture or furniture or something like that. So I'm, you know, I'm trying to think of, I, I'm inspired by this one I-beam that I found it. I'm, I'm planning on making a coffee table out of it, but really it's like this piece of metal that you would see in a industrial building or whatever but I'm going to put it in my living room. I love it. You know, that's kind of like the, the mindset behind it, I guess. Do you, who are some of your, inf, your influences in art? Oh, geez. Um, is that a hard one? It is a hard one. I mean, you know, my work, my sculptural work is largely kinetic, and I think I can look back at Alexander Calder being the first artist I ever paid attention to, you know, enough to kind of like remember his name, I guess, you know, and I think at that Greatest point, American in, sculptor in my career, I like, I needed the whimsy and the playfulness and 
and that kind of stuff. It was, it was really, it was really easy for me to comprehend, pay attention to and care about, you know, I think back about our history class. I never, I never was a strong academic. And when it came to like, you know, minimalist sculpture or something that had this crazy concept behind it, that wasn't blatantly obvious in the final product. I, I, I lost interest and I couldn't quite grasp it. So, you know, I, I remember latching on to Calder pretty quickly because I felt like a strong connection to the playfulness and, and the whimsy and the work that he created. And um, I, so I started to experiment with mobiles and stuff like that. And then I think that they they still play a big role in my work. And oddly enough, um, the, the artist who started the um, forging program at Carbondale did mainly kinetic sculpture as well. And so I, I became very influenced. Um, Brent Kington is his name, uh, by his work. And I think you see a lot more Kington in my work now than you do Calder. But, um, you know, I'd say those two guys are pretty, pretty strong influences on, on my, on my sculptural process. I, I, my personal opinion is Calder is the greatest American sculptor there ever was. Yeah. Because he created something that transcended sculpture. He transcended something that he transcended art in the United States to the point where he created the concept of the of the mobile and the stabile, yeah. which is the, you know his big giant these kind of I beam animals and stuff like yeah, that. And those are cool too. He, but what what's interesting is when you say the the, the whimsical nature. What I, when I think about your work and Calder's work is the intrinsic connection between the materials and the shapes. With Calder's work, especially if you look at state, you know, people when they think about mobiles, they think about the things they, fit, they go under, over their kids right. and the bassinet, you know, that's just, you know, that. But the concept behind the mobile is each part is interconnected, and the weight and the balance are one thing, but it's the importance, it's the greater part of all of it together, mm-hmm. and the whole from all these pieces and the interdependency of each piece. Mm-hmm. And I can see that, you know, in and of itself in your work, especially I remember an older piece you had that had these, that kind of the feather, the feathers kind of um, um, pivoting on the top right. and then this big base with these with these beautiful pieces that were riveted together. I see that interconnection that is, you know, I'm not like on the nose Calder, but I see the relationship and the importance of each piece to the whole piece. Yeah, it's definitely there. It's definitely there. And then I think my a lot of my background um, is heavily influenced by by craft. And, and hmm. you know, I, I even though I went to Alfred, which, you know, is, is more of an art school than a craft school, my sculpture professor there always stressed... Um, knowledge of the material over um conveying of a concept so you know it wasn't it wasn't as much like what is this sculpture commenting on society's you know social justice whatever uh it was more like do you really know how to use the welder and stuff like that and then i think carbondale obviously is is very craft um influenced um so as you know i did have conceptual sculpture going on but i was much more interested in 
I'm much more interested in the way it's constructed versus what it says. You know, if you can have the two together in harmony, that's best case scenario. But this internal struggle between the craftsman and the sculptor um, is ever present in my work. And that's hilarious because if you if you want to learn how to not be a welder, do, if you want to learn how to be a terrible welder, go to art school. Right. Because most of the time, there is this giant disconnect between the the craft and the sculpture in and of itself. So, I mean, if I look at my work from when I was a uh, freshman in, in learning how to use the MIG welder, I mean, my teacher didn't understand. He didn't know how to convey what is the relationship between the weld and the sculpture in itself? I see all these MIG welds. What does that vocabulary mean, and how does it? Tr how is it important to the work? Right. We never even had that. So I'm leaving college. I'm throwing welds on everything, and, and it's just like, <laughs> well, now, I mean, what is? How does that? How does that vocabulary relate to the sculpture in and of itself? And how does you? How do you? How are you able to separate yourself out as the viewer looking at the work without seeing? I see that fucking weld there. Mm -hmm. What am I supposed to do with that? I mean, how is that? That's now all of a sudden that has that is always going to be vocabulary in that sculpture. Mm -hmm. That drives me crazy. Yeah. That's why I hate metal sculpture. Like found object stuff, or well, found objects in it. I think that found objects. I mean, you and I can talk about David Smith if you want. <laughs> no, I'd I, rather not. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate David Smith at the time. If you, if it's hard, you know, the hardest part about talking about art, if you don't like it or not. It's it's based on the time you you almost have to go in a time machine of of the mind to figure out what somebody what was going on at the time. At the time, it was very like so avant garde. But the problem was, and a lot of metal artists have this now, is they don't understand that when you're using found objects, you you're fooling around if you don't take in in account the vocabulary of that found object. So if you're welding a chain on something. You have to be able to express why that's valuable to the sculpture. Totally. Otherwise, you just see this. You see this chain. Right. And that's why your work is. I'm able to separate myself out because I know that there are no found objects on that piece, so that there's no already loaded, loaded. Uh, uh, actually, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to tell you this story that I've been kind of loathing to talk about just because I got involved in it is a number of years ago the city re reached out to me because they wanted to get me involved with a sculpture with uh, reclaimed guns from the, 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 the police department mm -hmm. and I just wanted to get my hands on them because I was afraid that some dude with like a you know an arc welder was going to get a hold of them and I just so I'm going to actually do this sculpture for this organization, and it's going to be, you know, these crushed guns. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things that it, I'm so – I'm having – I'm torn about it because I really don't like found object art. But at the same time, it's like I needed to have these guns. Mm -hmm. I needed to have these disposed of. They're already been destroyed by the public works of the city, and I didn't take a nickel from the this town or whatever. But I needed to have them because I didn't want other people to have them. So now I'm, I'm having this total, like um, – not a crisis, but it's like I'm having this real like struggle because I hate the idea of found object art and the fact that, you know, guns in and of itself are the ultimate, you know, loaded, for no pun intended, you know, subject matter. And I'm, I'm making this sculpture with these, you know, crushed guns in them. And then I'm having this like, you know, internal breakdown about it. Yeah. Good That's luck it. with that, dude. Um, 
I understand the struggle in, inside of you there. So I'll be anxious I know. to see what, what comes of it. Me too. It's like, I'm, it's, 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 uh, yeah, I've already committed to it and I'm doing it out of the goodness of my heart. But at the same time, I'm like, I don't talk about it a lot because it's like, I got one time I sent I, I took a picture of it and, uh, you know, our people are already like, what do you do with those guns? I'm like, this isn't, this isn't a, this isn't a pro second amendment. This is an anti second amendment. I'm right. with the, it, but it was like, it, this, I've put myself in the position I never wanted to be in, right. you know, because I don't like found object art. Right. And, I, but at the same time, I, you know, I was greedy. I, I couldn't let anyone else have them. So, yeah. Or that, let's go back to the school. <laughs> How many students can you house at a time? Um, <clears throat> eight, eight to 10, depending on, you know, uh, I guess COVID stuff. A couple of the rooms are doubles. Um, so generally we could have up to 10 max, uh, eight comfortably. A lot of our workshops, if they're power hammer intensive, though, only, um, have six open spots cause we only have three hammers and that's important ratio for me. And how close are the dormitories to the classroom? Uh, they are a short three minute walk. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. How psyched are you about that? I'm psyched, dude. I'm psyched. I'm psyched. Sorry, I got, you got me going earlier about sculpture. I, I, uh, I'm still kind of thinking along those lines. But... Oh, do you? Let's go back to it if you want to. <laughs> no, I, I don't. I don't really know what to say, but I thought that was interesting. Interesting conversation, really. You know, and I think. Oh, dude, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, feel free. I mean, you're, this is a safe space. I, I, I think that I have a problem personally with metal sculpture in general is because I did it for a bit and I worked for other artists and it is, it is, I, the, for me, metal sculpture, I hated the concept of calling myself a metal artist because I felt like I should be more, it should, I'm making sculpture. I'm not making sculpture. It doesn't matter what I'm making it out of. So I kind of, I tried to stop stigmatize you know because it was just like you know this glitzy thing of saying well i'm a metal sculptor because then all of a sudden when you tell someone that you're a sculptor they automatically think that you're you, you're standing in this you know you're making the you know david with you know Marble. granite and yeah. chisels right i mean that's the everybody always thinks that's what a sculptor is is someone who's making the statue of david with with hammers and chisels i i don't so know when, if this is something that was not around uh, you know, in the modern art era or was, but to, to me, like, I don't know if this is a new concept, but like you talk about materials and like being like a quote unquote metal sculptor. And I know because that was like at Alfred, it was like, you're, you're a metal sculptor, you're a ceramic artist, mm-hmm. uh, glass. It, it was, it was an art school, but it was always, there was no mixed media. It was always split up by the material so i'm like i'm raised on material and i i don't i don't want to work with anything other than metal Hmm. and you know you could create um whimsical kinetic bird sculptures out of you know mixed media or wood or even ceramic but like that's therein lies the, the 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 struggle and the the internal kind of like thought process is like, I want to make sculpture, but I only want to work in this one specific 
material and this one specific process. And it's like, okay, so there's also metals that you can't forge and I could care less about those metals. Right. You know what I mean? So it is, it's a kind of a weird place to be. And it's always like, a, I mean, do you think craft and, and sculpture or craft and art can exist harmoniously like that, that. I mean, that's kind of like what I'm working towards, but you know, do you think, I think there's a lot of other people out there in the same boat I am. I think, I think that there's once again, going back to discipline, I think that there's a lot of people who would refuse the idea of being more proficient in craft because it, in their minds, there's a lot of narcissism involved, but I think it's like you're, you know, don't tell me what to do. I think that when you become an artist or you become a sculptor, I think because we've allowed ourselves to to say that um, there's been a change in the way art is taught, where creativity and going outside the lines is important and showing your creativity and showing your creativity and there's no wrong answer. I think we've abandoned the idea that, listen, you can't write if you don't know the alphabet. Right. You can't write a book if you, can't, if you don't understand grammar. Right. So why should there be any difference with art? But for some reason, over the past, I don't know how many years, I always think that nowadays, you know, I think I, I resent art school in high school, in middle school, and in elementary school, because I always find it to be uh, more like a babysitting class, other than, rather than teaching the importance of craft and technique in order for you to become able to express yourself uh, three-dimensionally or two-dimensionally. Yeah, and I think like craft and technique, like you said earlier, kind of largely went away in a metal sense like maybe after the industrial revolution because you depended on machines to do a lot of stuff and then you know modern art became a thing and then I think to those artists it didn't really matter how it was made it mattered more what it said right and now I think there's a shift and how it's made is is equally or ju- uh, just as or if not more important than what it says. I agree with you. And it is interesting because I had a conversation about m- with my sisters who were both sculptors uh, this weekend and we were talking about just because, and it was an interesting conversation which was the concept of is skill, is skill the most important thing if you're not saying anything? You know, is the work saying something or is the skill more important? And I think that there need there should be a degree of both. I mean, it's to a certain degree. It, yeah, like the question is process a valid concept? I mean, what do you think of that? I think it is. It's it drives my every decision. Process does, but I think that's sort of a new a new concept. Like process being the concept of the work, rather than. I th- you know, politics or social, this or that. I love that you asked me that question because I've struggled with a lot of it because I think process is extraordinarily important. Uh, a lot of, I have a friends of mine who do, you know, photographic quality, quality paintings. I mean, these are paintings are so, you don't even, you can't tell that it's a, a painting until it, it's a photograph. You think it's a photograph, it's a painting. I love that stuff. But if it's not saying anything, and if you're not showing any kind of the humanity, that you, your own humanity, is it is valid? Are you telling the viewer that this is about 
this is about how good of a painter I am as opposed to what the painting is actually saying. I think that, you know, and it's like, I'm getting you mad. I no, think I'm no. getting you mad. Not getting mad. But it, 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 there, I think that there is, I, I think that if you look at, at art history in general, you look at what Gauguin was doing with the, with the, what all these guys, and they were pulling their hair out because this dude is just like slapping some paint down or, you know, it's just like, it was completely to this. I mean, it was, I almost think it's a generational thing. Mm-hmm. especially with the way we see art now. And I think that I'm glad that there's more of this, um, there's more of a push towards a sculpture or painting being more technical. I think it's important because we've allowed some stuff to go through that's just like, come on, man. I do too, and I think like that person was a very important person in society before the camera was invented. Like right. that was how you recorded a moment or or a landscape or whatever. You didn't have the luxury to take out your camera and take a picture. So then I almost see that painter alive in 2021 who paints, you know, photographic quality paintings. They're almost, in my mind, I can draw some connection to like a historical preservationist. Yeah. It's like a skill that I don't want to see go away because of how important it used to be. Well, this makes sense in regards to how you view, I mean, your worldview on blacksmith. Of course, like the same thing. It's like, I don't want a forklift in my shop, you know, to hold the material in those, you don't need those turn of the century steam hammers, you know, but like, I don't. It, a lot of what I do also borders on the on the line of historical preservation. It's like if if I had it my way, my shop we'd be creating sculpture on these large hammers without the use of much technology at all. And I think the the world of industrial forging right now is all CNC, computer operated manipulators. The the human being, and this is it's almost coming full circle from what we were talking about earlier is so detached from the forging process. And, you know, I want to, I want my shop and CMA's shop, the industrial forge shop to remain closely connected to the human touch. And for no other reason, then I don't want to lose that. Like modern industrial forging, there's no more tongs. Tongs are gone. It's all manipulators. I mean, that's okay. That's a really broad statement. That might not be really well. You know, you know, you're not even on a smaller scale. Most people making Damascus weld on billet, weld on steel. They don't even use tongs, right? And I, I just thought of a couple industrial shops that still use tongs. Like right after that statement left my mouth. No, but that's I think fine. But I mean, I... it's the it's the ideas is what I'm trying to convey. I agree. So does that mean that, I mean, you could, you could, that is an, an, you know, that's an allegory for, for almost everything nowadays. You know, even the way, you know, I, 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 I make jokes about like, you know, we get messages on uh, knife talk and here and, and I get, sometimes people get real angry or they, they'll, they'll correct me on something or they'll say something that I've said. And, or, but if it's like, if there's like, if the spelling is really fucked up or the grammar is really fucked up, I'm just like, eh. 
I can only take so much of this. I can't get, I mean, I can only, I feel like that there's, I think that there's this, this lack of discipline and understanding in almost everything. Yeah. But, but with sculpture, what interests me, and I wonder, and I just want to hear what you think is, I always feel like when I look at certain sculptures, you could talk about Lee Arapach for, for this matter. Mm -hmm. I wonder, I wonder what the metal, when you call yourself a metal sculpture, I always think to myself, what, when you're looking at a person's work, why does the metal matter in the sculpture? Like, does it, why is it your, I mean, with you, it's, tell me, why does the metal matter? Because I fell in love with the process of it. You know, and it's like, it, I would, if I couldn't work with, me, I, I don't know, it, it, it matters because it, satisfies something in me that um needs to be satisfied that i don't get from cutting a piece of wood or something like that yeah the the material is like it's very special if you think about what you do to it when you forge it there's not that many materials in the world that can withstand that kind of workmanship so it's like, have you ever hammered a piece of wood under your power hammer? It just breaks apart. You know, like glass, ceramics, um, wood, plastic, you know, uh, Kevlar. I don't know what are these modern materials are nowadays, but it's like yeah. forging is such a special process that is reserved for a small amount of metals, which, you know, are almost you know like natural elements found on this earth and we figured out how to refine them and forge them and that literally like changed the course of humanity and to be involved in a craft that was so influential and whether you like where we are now as a society or not it's a pretty pretty special material and process to be working with yeah. Very beautiful. <laughs> so I don't know. It matters to me, but it might not matter to everybody. And then I think about the dude, the last blacksmith to work in the industrial shop at CMA. He didn't care about forging. It was just a job to him. So he's not going to, you know, punch out of work and then heat something up to like, make a sculpture out of it or whatever but somewhere down the road the human beings became kind of passionate re like reignited their passion for the for the process so much so that they found this other sort of outlet for it which you know is in my mind a sculpture pat quinn can't get much better than that. <laughs> Sorry, I'm rambling at this point. No, <laughs> no, you were. It was not a ramble there. Listen, I've had people on here ramble. That wasn't a ramble. That was. I mean, that was eloquent. I. I just. I always wonder, especially with sculpture, sculpture in in and of itself. And I don't even necessarily think I make sculpture. Like the older I get, the more, the more I'm very. You know, I'm, I'm much more interested in talking to people and seeing you know their process and the thoughtfulness and stuff like that. And. And when it comes to, you know, the materials in and of itself of making sculpture, I always, I question, not a question in like, I'm not like interrogating, but it's just like, tell me why this 
has to be made out of steel or tell me why this has to be made out of wood or tell me why this this because when I look at sculpture when I go to a gallery and I look at something I want to look at it and I want to be transported I don't want to see I don't want to see how it was made I don't want to think about how it was made I want to think about I don't want to see poor craftsmanship I don't want to see something that's going to you know not allow me to focus on what the sculpture is saying I want to look at the lines. I want to look at what's going on. I want. I don't. I want. I want the craft to be removed. Really. And when I see certain sculptures, especially metal sculptures, if some things stop me in my tracks and don't allow me to understand what the artist is saying, which ultimately says that it's not good art or bad art. It's unsuccessful to what the artist was trying to create. Mm-hmm. And when I look at your work, I see the dependency on the forge, the forging part of the steel, not just that it's metal. I see the fact that it's the manipulation of the material and how and how things relate to each other and tapers and, you know, pivots, pivots and rivets. And I see the relationship of the of the objects in and of themselves to understand that it is dependent on on that the fact that it is forged steel and that it isn't something else. Mm hmm. And I'm the opposite of you. When I when I go into an art gallery or, you know, any place, an antique store or whatever, all I care about is how the things I'm looking at are made. Yeah, I just want I want to I want to know what the I want to, I want to know what the person's saying. Yeah, and if they're clear. Like at that, this is this podcast. It's it is one of those things that I wanted when I started this podcast. I wanted to separate out the people that I'm talking to with the tools that they have. I'm far more interested in the the mindset of how they got to where they got or why they do what they do, and I find that that to me is far more interesting than what they what the tools that they have. So this is kind of almost that version of when I look at the sculpture, I want to see how, you know, when you look at the sculpture, you want to see how well, you want the sculpture to be so good that it doesn't make you, you know, it doesn't make you, it doesn't make you stumble on looking at what they're trying to say. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. And I think that happens a lot with poor craftsmanship, but not with, not with good craftsmanship. I think good craftsmanship allows you to to not focus on the craft more than yeah. more the what it's saying. But um, I still appreciate the good good craftsmanship. No, I'm not saying I don't. No, I'm, I'm not just, saying you don't. Either, I like but... to go in there. I like to go in there flying and being like, you know, I don't want to see. Ugh, what did? What, why did they do that? That drives me crazy. Yeah. I don't want that part. I want to be like transported. Right. I'm looking for some sort of experience. Right. And I never get it. I ultimately, I think the biggest problem is, is I think that there's a there's not a very good under teaching of what art is is and what it isn't. I don't think people have an understanding of art, and that's why I always kick back with knife makers and say none of it's art. You know, I don't think knife making is art, but I mean that's just like part of that's just to kind of get people mad. So yeah, well, I have no idea what art is either. So Pat Quinn, Center for Mental Arts, twenty twenty two. Classes are available, ladies and germs. Centerformetalarts.org. Listen, let's just talk about some of the classes that are going to be down there. You're going to have Jesse Savage and Carrie Savage are going to be down there for the weekend. Nate, uh, was it Nate Weiss? Yeah. 
Nate Weiss is going to be teaching a slingshot class. That is going to be a hot ticket item. I'm very interested in that. I'm going to be down there doing a friction folder class. And one of the things I love about this friction folder class is that I worked with Pat and we figured something out. I've always loved using these subway tokens as the washer. And I was so happy that you found these subway token, these tokens from what is that token from? By the trolley, way, from, the uh, trolleys that used to be running all through the town. But there's like a trolley that goes up. You guys are always going up and down on a trolley. What is going on with that trolley? Is that a trolley? <laughs> That's the incline plane, which is kind of like a trolley. It, it rides on a track, um, but it goes up and down the mountain. And originally they were created um, before the railroads when when the country was going to be more dependent on canal systems to get boats over the mountains. Um, but... Now they've become, Johnstown had a lot of them for the steel industry and to get up and down to neighborhoods that didn't yet have roads to them and stuff like that. So That thing looks like so much fun. It's the best. And unfortunately, it's down all year for repairs. Um, it's a good thing because they the, the city received like a huge grant to like redo a bunch of the a bunch of the structure and all that kind of stuff. So um, it's going to get better, but it won't be won't be rideable next year. All right. So when you guys take the classes for 2023, we'll That's right. get a ride on the incline, pl- incline plane. So we have Peter. We have Peter Ross. We have Nick Anger. We have Salem Straub. Tell me about the bike class you guys just did. You just bi- you built a bicycle. Yeah, that what class was, that? was really, really cool. Um it's taught by Megan Dean, and she's from uh, Arizona, female female bicycle frame builder, and um, she she's really good friends with uh, Jared from Hope Cyclery in Johnstown, the local bike shop, and um, you know he introduced me to her, and I've always kind of wanted to host a, a frame building class and stuff like that, and uh, she came down with the jigs and all the tools and stuff, and it was it was a blast, man. I couldn't couldn't believe how much fun it was. So you built your own bike. I did, yeah. I got you know. I stayed stayed after hours every day to 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 get through one. I I've always wanted to build one, and it's really dependent on this specific frame building jig. And and while while there was a jig in the shop, I had to I had to try to sneak one in there. And um, Megan was cool, man. She made me feel really um, included in the class, even though generally I don't, I don't take every class we offer, but, um, she, she went out of her way to help me build a frame. It was, it was super nice. That's that, look, that, that, that's the ultimate, isn't it? Yeah. Building your own bike. Yeah. How does it ride? Uh, it rides great, man. I, I really like it. Um, it's simple. I'm, I'm really interested in like classic road bike geometry. So I kind of stuck with that and, uh, just kept it simple, but I, I love it. I think it's cool. No more Italian steel. It's all Johnstown steel now. Yeah, You're gonna be making right. some Johnstown bikes. Yeah, hell yeah. All right. So go get yourself a class there. Make yourself a bike. There's, I mean, what are some of the other classes? Uh, we're doing the um, primitive tool chest hardware, which is really cool. Two collaborative sculpture workshops. We're having Jake back. And doing one with Zach Noble. If you're not familiar with his work, uh, it's really, really talented sculptor. And he's also going to be this this year's featured demonstrator at our at our conference, forging under the big Chambersburg. So um, that's going to be super exciting. 
John Williams and myself are doing a one-week Kong intensive. Wow. And, yeah, a handful of other things. Math class that I'm super excited about. Actually, math class? Actually, it's not. Oh, f- it's not. It's not. I, I want to yeah, take let's... that back. It's a four-week yeah, class with a heavy mathematical influence. Very cool. Yeah. So this is the place to be, guys. He's got housing. He's got, they eat pizza. They have <laughs> a good do. time. They have a good time. It's, you're going to learn something and stop watching YouTube and go take a class. I want you to go to centerformentalarts.org. Get yourself invested. Get yourself invested in something that's important. You've heard what Pat has had to say. It's very important. And he's, you, I mean, he's, he sold me, man. He sold me, he sold me on his love of metal. And he's going to make you love metal, too. So, Pat, I can't, I can't thank you enough for coming on. This has been a lot of fun. Is there any last-minute things you want to say or any, uh, anything I missed? No, I think, yeah, I think that's good. I always like to just let people know that they're always welcome to reach out to myself uh, on social media or call the shop or whatever, and I'm more than happy to, to answer anyone's questions regarding any, any class or or anything really you know cma's here here as a resource for the aspiring blacksmith so if there's anything anybody needs just uh don't hesitate to reach out and you do teach private classes too yeah definitely teach a lot of private classes all right so guys i mean you want to you want to be the best you got to go to the best and that's (laughs) center for metal arts and pat quinn once again thank you go follow pat on instagram Hand forged in VT. Yeah. In VT or VT? In VT. In VT. And then go follow the Center for Metal Arts on Instagram and see what's going on because it's, it's, you can't miss it. You just can't miss it, guys. I can't stress enough the importance of what Pat's doing. Pat is the modern day blacksmith. And he, what he's doing is he's putting the humanity back into blacksmith you know there were never humanity never left ladies and gentlemen <laughs> i don't know why i said that i was I, all of a sudden i was thinking about the justin timberlake when he said uh uh bringing sexy back and then prince said fucking sexy never left so i'm telling you now <laughs> humanity never left ladies and gentlemen and just get yourself a little bit of humanity over the center for mental arts pat thank you once again and i appreciate it and i can't wait to see you this spring i can't thank you enough for having me back man i really appreciate it thank you so much Anytime, and we can talk about art or society next time we come on, whatever you want. I'm, I'm not afraid. I'm with you. Okay, cool. <laughs> All right. Thanks again, guys. We will see you next week. All right. The Full Blast Podcast is proudly sponsored by Axe Wax, an all natural, food safe wax for coating your handles. It can be used on your axes, your knives, or even on your boots with the full confidence that Axe Wax is safe and durable. Furthermore, if you use the promo code FULLBLAST10, you will get a special 10% discount on your order. So go to axewax.us and get yourself some of the most luxurious wax for waxing your axe. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.